and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today, we're talking to Charlene Teo, author of Ponty, about writing from three different perspectives, following the flow of the narrative and ignoring the writing rules in order to stay positive. Since my divorce, I sleep better. Seven solid hours every night, right until my alarm goes off. I remember my dreams better, too. Lately, I've had dreams about auditions and choir practice, sincerely hoping to be a professional singer, unaware of how discordantly my life would unfold. And even further back in time, dreams of being close with my brother, back when it was the two of us in collusion against adulthood. Leslie and I would have done anything never to grow up, even as kids, we knew what a cliché we wore. We rewatched our copies of Hook and Peter Pan until the tape stripes wore out. Can't believe that my brother is now 35 and has a goat-like wisp of facial hair, a bitchy banker wife, and two smart, sulky children. Back when we were children ourselves, we hid behind the living room curtains, pale and tense, as Daddy sat stony-faced at the dining table, sorting bills. Leslie and I hated seriousness. Adulthood seemed to us like an endless stream of paperwork and sighing, frowning and always saying sorry, even when you didn't mean it. Yuck, not the borings again, Leslie would proclaim at the sound of guests' voices in the hallway. He would groan like the green monster from Are You Afraid of the Dark, because it was going to be a long-stayed evening when our parents threw a dinner party. When we watched TV, Leslie and I made rushing noises at any kissing scenes. When we got a fax machine connected to an extra phone line, we used to call each other from opposite rooms, inventing long jokes devoid of punchlines, telling elaborate ghost stories to each other until our ears grew hot from the receiver and mummy wailed for us to do our homework. The year we had the internet installed, we listened in on the rainstorm jangle of data on the phone line, interrupting each other's connectivity. That was 1997, the dawn of the Asian financial crisis, a period of rapid currency decline and market upheaval. Yet, whilst other businesses crumbled, my father's hitherto limping luxury trading company unexpectedly thrived. It turned out that even in times of fiscal ruin, people still harbored a bullish, avaricious appetite for certain kinds of jewelry, watches, and double-breasted suits. Our family moved out of the flat where I'd spent my whole life, straight into a two-story detached villa on Margoliath Road, with floors so shiny I could see my gleeful face in them. We went from budget to five-star hotels, cushioned in my father's new money. Funny how long it takes to adjust the to the removal of privileges, but how little time is needed to get accustomed to comfort. Hotel is a hotel is a hotel. Mummy used to berate Leslie and me for taking nice things so quickly for granted, and my brother and I would roll our bratty eyes at each other and mouth, nag, nag, nag. We bickered with and play-hit each other in stuffy aeroplanes that crisscrossed the world. Our parents paid thousands of dollars in order to relocate our arguments and petty grievances across different cities. Us lows loved each other but seldom got along, even back then. Is every family privately the same, or were we especially negative? Athens, Tokyo, Mozambique. In tour buses, rented cars, rattling trains, we paid no attention to the scenery, blinkered by our freshly funded monstrosity. Leslie kept his eyes on his Game Boy, eye on my Tamagotchis. 
All these come back, all these things come back with such clarity and detail in my sleep that first thing in the morning, just before I grope around for my phone, I feel this pit of old time nested in my chest. It's a physical thing, a weight shifting. For a moment or two, I think that I'll see my old black Backstreet Boys poster on the wall, and I expect to put on my uniform to go to school. All this, even though it's been at least two years since Leslie and I had a genuinely nice time together, just the two of us. And next month, I'll turn 33 years old. Hi, Charlene. Thank you so much for joining us on the Riff Raff podcast. To kick us off, could you tell us a little bit what Ponty is about? Um, Ponty is a novel set entirely in Singapore. It takes place um, from the late 60s to the year 2020. And it um, centers upon um, a woman called Amisa Tan, who is a failed um, horror movie actress who um, stars in a B-horror movie trilogy called Ponty um, in the late 70s and early 80s, um, just when this sort of genre was not very popular in Singapore. Um, and it also is narrated by her teenage daughter, Sue, um, in the early 2000s, um, who's really friendless. And um, the final... Strand is uh, narrated by uh, Sue's um, sort of frenemy, school friend, like only friend, uh, named Cersei, um, as an adult um, in the year 2020. And um, she has she works as a sort of social media sort of publicity consultant, um, and she's promoting a remake of the Ponty movies. Um, so that forces her to revisit her relationship with um, Amisa and Sue. Um, you know, several years later. Cool. Yeah. Okay, so you've, as, as you just mentioned, um, the stories told by those three narrators and um, who all live in different decades or who are, are writing from different times. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you developed each character and who came first in the idea process? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, basically, um, the, the sort of the sort of seed of Ponty was um, formed during my master's. Uh, I did it at UEA. Um, East Anglia, and um, I was really obsessed with the idea of writing a novel narrated by a sort of Southeast Asian female cannibalistic entity, because I'd just never read anything quite like it, you know, and that's something that I wanted to, to try for myself, and um, basically having this really sort of powerful, monstrous, unrepentant character, and I wrote about sort of 25, 30,000 words of it. It was a lot of fun. She went around, for example, going to supermarkets, poking meat, um, you know, pooping on people, um, you know, really, really violently murdering people. Um, wow. <laughs> um, she was she was a lot of fun, but it, it kind of just went nowhere. And also, um, I feel like if, you, if you're sort of working with the mythology or, or sort of like oral tradition like that, you know, you need to be sort of very careful and very respectful and also very um, clear about the delineations of the worldview, so to speak. So I was I was really sort of inexperienced about it and just, you know, went about it in a really haphazard way. So after a while, I realized that that book wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> um, but I, I still was really taken with the idea of this, this monster because it, in the original iteration, this monster, um, you know, she she ends up it's quite, you know, in, in, the, in the tradition of like, you know, vampire movies or like Highlander or whatever. She's like becomes one of the only Pontianucks. That's why they're called Pontianucks um, left around. And, and she finds herself really powerless because everybody is sort of, you know, everybody believes more in um, sort of digital culture and the power of the Internet rather than superstition. Um, so that was what I was keen on initially exploring. Um, so I, I thought 
I was really in, interested in that juxtaposition between the sort of old, you know, the violently violent sort of mythological old, like the messiness of it, and, and the new, which is super slick and like you know up to date. You know, we, we're constantly sort of clued into everything. There's there's no sort of real mysteries anymore. Um, so I, I I'm really into sort of B horror movies or horror movies and filmmaking. So I thought, what if there was someone who acted as that monster? Um, but because of how long um, the, the kind of film distribution, filmmaking process takes, I mean, quite similar to writing a book, actually, it takes quite a while, right? What if by the time that the film came out, it was already out of fashion? So, you know, she was stuck in a project that was sort of dead in the water to begin with. So I, I love the idea of sort of failure. And I also never really read many books where, like, the character is sort of set up to fail and just fails. What then, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and that cool. and that's the seed of Amisa. Yeah, that's that. really really long winded explanation. <laughs> like it. It's so interesting to hear oh. that you kind of started with this incredibly out there, mm. you know, almost like you say mythological character, and then brought her back and changed it from instead of the ca- you know the monster itself to someone who acted yeah. the monster, and to hear that that's how you that's, that's how cool. you landed at Amisa. And like, yeah. well, what a great way to research your main character and to get to know all like her motivations, like to get yeah. to know her and stuff like that. Like we were just chatting to Stuart Turton, and he was saying that he like takes each of his um, each of his characters out on kind of like a walk to the shops or something like that, yeah. like to sort of get behind their kind. So you must have been really in kind of her mindset or like that kind of yeah, yeah good, good research process yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rather than wasted words. And so, how did Sue and Cersei come about? Um, well, I feel that with. I think with with the Amisa character, I thought you know she had to be a sort of she had to be a bit enigmatic, so it, it might it might have made more sense um, sort of in terms of narrative tension or whatever to kind of have her constantly be observed by someone, and um, I was also very interested in sort of the the kinds of familial ties and and the sort of familial influences that. Um, women in particular have on, on each other so what if you're you know at that age when you're a teenager and you're really sort of you have this constant discomfiture with your body and you're constantly comparing yourself to your incredibly beautiful incredibly glamorous mother who who seems like not just from a different time but from a different planet a lot of the time and who is really sort of emotionally unavailable um so so that's how Sue came about and I, I I tried to kind of make them have very distinctive sort of narrative um sort of knacks in a way. So I think Sue's a little bit despondent and melancholy and she's kind of incredibly um you know, kind of sentimental and, and um daydreams a lot. Um so she's kind of a much sweeter character than than her mother. Yeah, they're very different. And um so see so see as the school friend I, I think I had a lot of fun with because she's narrating as an adult. So she's kind of the closest to, to uh, contemporary consciousness. So she's kind of the easiest in a way. And um, she's just very sardonic and likes to kind of quip a lot. <laughs> yeah. Fun to write. And, and you mentioned yeah. that there's sort of frenemies in the book. And I, yeah. when I was reading the way that they interact with each other, we've all got a Cersei in our life who we kind of... It's quite a kind of depend- codependent relationship, isn't Possibly, it? Possibly, yeah, yeah. Um, that that was that was what I was trying to get at in many ways, um, and I felt with with these particular teenage girls, um, the thing that I found really sort of fun about them and kind of sweet is that I feel with with these dynamics as I've seen them depicted in films, 
Um, like there's a really good one with um, Michelle, a movie with Michelle Williams and I think Anna Friel. I think it's it's a, um, yeah. and it's called I think it's called Me Without You and it's it's a kind of quintessential I think really good sort of girl girl you know female friendship sort of Bildungsroman. But I felt there's always this prevailing dynamic that I've seen at least in films where one of the one of the teenage girls is super sexy and like super kind of in control of her sexuality and her femininity and the other one kind of always follows. So I, I kind of wanted to write a book where both of them were equally clueless. Yeah. <laughs> and they're just both like really gawky, kind of like perceived as losers in school and nothing changes. Like nobody waves a wand. They don't go to the mall or whatever and get a makeover. No, no. <laughs> Life isn't like that. No, exactly. People nice. just grow up and like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and which kind of leads us neatly onto our next question, which yeah. is, that they're all, without giving too much away, they're all slight outsiders. Is that is that a fair description of yeah. them? You, I'm not sensing that. That's kind of that's how I sort of read them. They're they're all slightly on the outside, you know, on the edges of what we might consider very mainstream. Or did you kind of specifically? You've mentioned failure. Did you specifically yeah. want to write characters who kind of weren't the popular ones who could give a bit of a different perspective on things like high school you know specifically yeah. well I don't I don't know I think I just naturally tend to gravitate towards characters like that um, also in terms of what I read because I find it a lot more interesting not that people who are outwardly successful um, do not have their own complexities but I guess with this particular particular book I, I just was interested in yeah depicting the sort of marginal or the kinds of yeah outcasts in a way yeah, the characters that don't always get the, the time that they deserve and stuff like that. Yeah, they, they don't. I don't think any of them do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you cover a lot of themes that are particularly pertinent to women, such as the relationships we have with our mothers, which are ridiculously complicated, <laughs> and obviously standards of beauty. Um, did you consciously, was 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 that like your plan? You were, you wanted to set out to write about those things, or did that kind of naturally come about having developed the characters? I think that, that kind of happened quite organically because I, I felt that, the process of writing, at least for me, I'm not much of a like linear plotter. So I wrote it in kind of scraps and fragments, and and the, the the strands were so confusing. At some point, I was getting the names of the men mixed up because I think the men are so like useless, frankly. So, um, <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> Cut them out. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean the, the 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 male characters are not kind of they don't play as much of a sort of part in the sort of um, main narrative um, but yeah so I didn't really plan it and I didn't really set out to kind of I don't know um, you know have certain themes but eventually you know in the writing certain kinds of things um, started rising to the top I suppose or like making themselves apparent yeah and you yeah. say you say that you write in um fragments and stuff like that um could you tell us a little bit about, more about your writing process like mm-hmm. you don't just sit down at page one and like, oh, gosh, yeah, tell us no, more about that I, I love hearing about people's processes well basically <laughs> I, I found like obviously I've only written one so I don't know whether this is like I, I feel that every project is a little bit different so I'm not sure how it'll be be um going forward um but I use a program called Scrivener um which I I I kind of um, take as my sort of drafting or composting or you know sort of free writing tool, but then actually when it comes down to doing a, a you know a serious piece of work, I always go back to Word because there's something about 
the document that really sort of mobilizes me and forces me to concentrate. But with Scrivener, because it, it allows you to create all these sort of sub-documents, mm. and sometimes I, I have... Um, for 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 the Ponty project, for example, I have like you know I don't know over a hundred of these sub documents, but in each one sometimes it'll just be say an internet link or yeah an image you know just something like that. Um, so basically, it's not that I write a scene in every single sub document, yeah, but it looks pretty impressive. Yeah, like and, and it also gives you like the, the, tells you how whether you've done your word count for that day, and I quite like that kind of little counter thing. Even bar, though yeah. when you're just free writing, it doesn't matter how many words you do. It's quite nice to yeah. kind of see that little going to the green mm-hmm. yeah 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 <laughs> yeah it's like and a bit of achievement it really is mm. and um i think that, that another great merit of it is that it's searchable so say if you if you wanted to find the word like you know caterpillar it'll tell you exactly where and, and that's like pretty wonderful because i think word with word um the word program after you hit say i think even around 40,000 words, it, it starts getting very hard to scroll through. It, it starts like, it does this worrying thing. I don't know if you've had this in the Word, Word document where it, it kind of miscounts and you're like, wait a minute, this whole document's not 20,000 words. Yeah. And then it's like, whoops, sorry. Yeah. It does. <laughs> and then you're like, have I opened an old version? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. then, it, then you start to panic that you've lost stuff. And like it, cra- yeah. it also crashes, it, mine at least crashes and bugs more the longer the document gets. So anyway i wonder if that's like a ploy like we're all stressed out writers like worrying about that kind of stuff it seems yeah. a bit mean from microsoft to like add another stress to our <laughs> writing process <Yeah. laughs> um sorry um so when you say that you did a lot of free writing and yeah. all these sub documents how closely did those things that you were writing resemble um the finished document or how far away did you write from the the final narrative did you kind of do a lot of backstory for the characters or a lot of kind of or was it all quite tight no i think unwittingly i did i had a lot of sort of digressions and diversions like I like to say that I just kind of closed my eyes and like the story just came out, just flowed out of me, you know, it was effortless. No, not at all. It was, it was really, really long, snaking process. I can't, I can't even sort of fully recall it because there were so many different paths that it took. Yeah, and I think eventually it was just like fear and 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 sort of stress and desperation that like forced me to kind of somehow like cohere it together. Because I was, was going to say, was there ever a point where you were writing something and you thought, this is the way that it needs to go? Or was it kind of at the end, you were just like, fuck, I need to put everything together and get a book? Well, I mean, I think there was there was a, a sort of, there was a point when I kind of hit my stride and I, I, I realised um, how I wanted the book to end. Um, and, and then I felt, okay, it was a lot easier for me to work toward that. And then I was like, I should just have done this in the beginning, but, you know, whatever. Like, I mean, with, with the book I'm working on now, I have no idea how. I have, like, a rough inkling, but again, I have no idea. And I'm basically just using the same process. Yeah. Hey, but it worked with this one brilliantly. So, yeah, so we'll see, hopefully. And how long did it take you to write? Well, the first the first incarnation of it um, was I started in 2012 and then I kind of left that monster behind um, for good probably around sort of mid-2013 and then I restarted it like Ponty the reboot in like um, toward the end of 2014 and I wrapped it up um, around September 2016 so yeah that was the and then obviously you've edited it with editors and stuff yeah yeah Cool. I, I really love um, the sort of multi-narrative style of book. 
And what do you think, um, what do you think kind of the main challenges of doing that kind of thing? And what was the, you know, what tips do you have for people that are hoping to write a multi-narrative book? Oh God, I'm not the expert. I wish it was like <laughs> Jennifer was Egan or someone. You know, like, they, don't, they don't be like really wise, like, like Yoda. I, I don't know. Um, no, I, I feel that for me at least, the, the main, the main um, thing to watch out for with sort of multi-voice is really like everyone just sounding the same. Yeah. Right? Because you, you don't want them to sound the same. Um, so I feel that the, the, the thing that helped me was, um, as I described, kind of just making sure that I kept um, each character's sort of like knack, like something that defined them um, at, at the back of my mind. So like that everybody has certain vocabularies and they have certain sort of ways of phrasing things or certain ways of um, perceiving or framing their experiences. Um, so I tried to keep that quite distinctive mm. and also bear in mind um, the um, realistic consciousness of someone at a particular point of time. So like how a sort of 17 year old would sort of behave or how a 17 year old would sort of think back on their behavior versus say someone in their 30s who sort of you know for example been through a divorce or something mm. so they'd approach relationships and they'd approach even concepts of time in very distinct ways and did you um did you write sort of one person's narrative and then do another person's narrative or were you switching in between the different ones switching. switching did you have any kind of like little things that you did to kind of get into their mindset like little processes like listening to music or yeah i listen to music a lot when i write and most of it is sort of instrumental mm. stuff so yeah i guess listening to music and getting into the different moods of the characters yeah or or just kind of just trying to kind of really empathize with them and really give a shit about them <laughs> like don't forget I, I would do this thing where i'd get really into one character and then i'd kind of forget what it was like to kind of try and you know represent the consciousness of another and then it would take a while it's like getting into a pool you have to kind of ease back into it mm. it's fun though yeah Absolutely. And they they do come across. They're so distinct. Oh, great! Which is, so you know, hats off. It's worked really well. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> um, you also have quite an interesting story about how you got your book deal. Yeah. Could well, you? Like, it just went really, really well, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about how you um, pitched your book, how you found an agent, how you got your book sure. deal? Um, well, basically, I. Um, I was working on the book for a while, and I'm also in the middle of sort of a PhD um, at UEA, um, but I was really sort of struggling with, with the novel because I, I just kind of felt, oh, you know, I've been working on it for so long. I did a whole MA. I, I still feel, if not, um, you know, more clueless than, than, at least when I was younger, I had that sort of youthful braggadocio. I had that kind of like, you know, you know, oh yeah, of course I'll do it. And, and I think I was just time was going on and I was just feeling really hopeless and it was getting to the point where I, sometimes I just read books and I'd be like this is so good what am I even doing like you know <laughs> feeling terrible about it so when when it came to um when I found out about the the Deborah Rogers award I remember um I I sound like some like I sound, it sounds really antiquated. I was going to say when I surfed onto the site. Who says that? I think the last time I heard someone say that was in like 1995. I quite like it, retro. Yeah, it's internet tutorials. Like, well, welcome to GeoCities. No, I, I surfed onto the site. <laughs> and it was like really official looking. And I, I just remember reading the um, sort of um, entry instructions. And, and I, I, 
I had this kind of really shrimpy, sort of defeated attitude. I was like, oh, well, I'm just going to try and um, like compile what I have. I think it was 15, 20,000 words and, and write a synopsis. So so the whole, the whole like, um, sort of, um, yeah, the whole impetus for me was just basically to, to, to make sure that I had sort of 25,000 coherent words and a synopsis because I thought this is very useful, you know, for the future. Yeah. So I have no like expectations whatsoever um you know of, of it going anywhere but i might as well try um and, and um I, I remember like i submitted it like quite late at night and and i after i submitted it i watched this like iranian vampire movie which i really love <laughs> called like a girl walks home alone at night and i, I and like that. yeah and me and my then boyfriend like ate like lots of pizza nice so it was like I remember he was like well done you've done the summary and everything and I I was kind of re-editing the first two pages of of the manuscript like obsessively like over and over because I was like they're probably not like you know they're probably going to have a lot of entries so they're probably not going to read everything so it's kind of like a cover letter Mm. so I just want to make sure that the first bit really works yeah and then I didn't hear anything and then I got this weird email on, I remember on International Women's Day nice yeah it was really cool <laughs> um, me and my friends had gone to see something in the South Bank Centre and I got this email from um, the, the agency RCW that had um, organised it and it was just kind of it just said like you know dear dear entrant or something like that <laughs> you know you've been, you know it's been passed on to the, the judges or whatever so I was like that's weird you know Suddenly, I remember asking my friends, and they were like, "Nah, it's like a form email, it's like a you know acknowledgement." So I was like, "Oh, okay, that's fine." <laughs> and then, like a month or so later, I got another email at the time from like a like a person, and they were like, "Can you resubmit your like bio information?" So I was like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, how's that? <gasps> so then I was like, "She was like, you know, for the long list," and I was like, "The long list." So I was like, I replied, and I was like, "How?" a long list and how short is a short list because one never knows with these things yeah. and she was like oh they're eight and I was like oh, holy shit eight and I remember like I remember I came out I was in the British library and I came out and I was going to meet meet my friend afterwards and I was walking through King's Cross and I was just like grinning like an idiot I was like oh my gosh I can't believe it yeah so then it was it was totally totally amazing and then you so you obviously won that you came first didn't you yeah but yeah. I, I really I really did I really like like a, I really hadn't finished the book, and B, I really d- didn't expect it at all. But I had these like, you know, once once you get like a, a bit of hope, I was like, oh my gosh, like I can't imagine. So so yeah, when I when I won, I was just like, unbelievable. It was so yeah, it was so dreamy. Oh, congratulations! And then obviously, did, then did you go on to get your agent? Um, off yeah, the back of that? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that was the um, Deborah Rogers Award that Deborah you won, Rogers which Award, is yeah. for first time fiction. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry to help people write their first book. So yes. everyone out yeah. there needs to check Actually, it out. Actually, I think it goes across genres. So, oh, like, nice. if you if you write, there's um, excellent sort of nonfiction book, um, and um, I think there's I I'm not I'm not sure the rules. I, I can't remember the rules. Of the we will we'll put links on it in our yeah. show notes. So yeah, um, but I strongly encourage people to apply, even if you're not feeling at all confident, because you really really never know. Yeah, you really don't, and and, and you know you, you should always give yourself a shot. And also, like, it, even if it doesn't go anywhere, like, there's there's a lot um, of sort of posi- positive experience in putting something together, putting yourself out there. Yeah, and it, there's so many factors as well. You know, it's it's a lot to do with luck and like who's judging mm, it and stuff like that. You know, so yeah. yeah. 
Well, it's very well deserved. And Ian McEwan called it remarkable, didn't they? Yeah, he's so nice. How wonderful. <laughs> well, it is remarkable. Yeah. Oh, so, <laughs> but then it obviously then you um, it's all been, it's been optioned in loads of different countries and like they were, was it the London the Frankfurt Book Fair where it all kind of kicked off? Yeah, or, that must have been. Were you over there or were you? No, I London? wasn't there. So you were just were you just hearing from your agent constantly? And, yeah, yeah. It's so nice. So, so dreamy. You must be like yeah, a dream come true. Congrats. Yeah, it really, what, what, it really was. But yeah. obviously you've put in the hard work as well. Yeah. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> Talking of which, so we have about a sort of 50-50 split of authors that we talked to at the Riff Raff, some of whom have no formal education in writing and mm. who started writing and then went on to get agent or might have done something towards the end, you know, with a, almost a fully formed book. The other half go into a formal process. So either like you did an MA um, or they go on and do, you know, uh, things like Faber writing courses. Yeah. So where do you stand on on that? How much did it help you? And is that something you would advise for you know, if someone's out there thinking, oh, should I commit to this MA? What would your yeah. advice be? Well, I feel like the, the main the main thing is sort of like time and prohibitive cost. You know, I feel that the, the, the kind of question of whether you need it or you don't, obviously you don't need it, but it is, you know, education in every sense of the word. I felt like it was a really sort of humbling, really eye-opening, um, really sort of um, great, but really challenging year for me um and it is also I think the first time for many people to sort of take themselves like more like take their sort of ambition and their sort of dream to be a writer seriously mm. and kind of identify as it um because a lot of the time I feel that you know it, it it's quite a kind of strange thing to do that you know to be like oh you know I'm a writer people are like oh really are you J.K. Rowling you know so <laughs> so there's a little bit of sort of social shaming around that um but yeah it is a great sort of time to kind of um you know read really widely experiment with different forms um and I think most importantly find a community of people who are doing the same things who are reading you know who are reading really sort of extensively who you know can support you um so I I thought it was it was wonderful and um, I feel like it really, really helped me. Um, but I don't think that it's absolutely essential. I, th- I really genuinely believe that everybody has their own process and their own sort of ways of coming to things, um, their own ways of developing their ideas. It's it's not a race. Mm-hmm. And there is there is room for every type of voice at the table. I think that it's just that we, we feel pressured by the sort of culture of... I don't know, constant barrage of like the new, the new, the new mm. to, to feel like, you know, we're running out of time or that there's limited amounts of spaces. But I feel that if, if you have something, everybody like, you know, that wants to tell stories has something really sort of valid and vivid to say. And, you know, you know, you form your own like ways of getting to that. Mm. Yeah, I think the important thing is just not to be discouraged. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, that we were going to actually ask you, I mean, you mentioned earlier some to put your work out there as your advice to aspiring writers, but is that being not being discouraged is that your other bit of advice what advice do you have for aspiring I mean, it's, writers, it's a little it's a little bit like like hypocritical of me because i am frequently discouraged and i frequently feel like some kind of like snail where i'm just like oh what am i doing this is terrible but i mean i i i feel that actually the most helpful thing for me is is sort of getting into this headspace of like um y- you know what i i can i can do whatever i like like sort of i can write however I like privately and nobody has to read it and it can be absolutely horrible in fact amusingly so and like you know it doesn't matter 
So I think like just the most important thing is not to sort of shoot yourself in the foot before you've even put yourself out there. Or... Yeah, because yeah, it can be so tough, can't it? That beginning bit, and you know, if you're sitting at home by yourself, you know, in your pajamas, writing away, yeah, and you've got no barometer necessarily at the beginning of is this good? Is this even worth pursuing? Yeah, but your advice is crack on. Yeah, it. and also, I mean, I think that we like it's it's like anything else. You know, if you want if you care about something so deeply that there is a tendency, I think it's a human tendency to kind of want to seek out sort of like almost um, like advice or methods. If there is a methodology of, of approaching certain things, like, you know, when you read those, those sometimes they just read them for fun. Like they're like, how to train for a marathon. And they're <laughs> like, you know, just eat like, you know, spinach and wake up at five, you know, five times a week, you know, and then do the fart legs or whatever. It's like really, really, like really complex. And I think that there's a similar sort of fetishization of writing processes and writing rituals. And I think that sometimes that's quite daunting. I mean, I personally feel kind of daunted by it. Like, you know, that there are these kind of scary methods on the internet where they're like, you should be writing 5,000 words a day yeah. or you should be writing 1,000 words in an hour. If you don't, you're like a wimp. I'm kind of like, oh no, I'm a total I'm a total wimp. Or they're like, you know, cross out every day of the calendar that you write. If you don't write, you know, every day that, you know, you're a wimp or something. I'm like, oh. I'm, sure, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, I have to say I don't write every day, but I, I read every day and I think that's yeah. the most important thing, like just reading good things every day. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you, are you like more of a morning writer or do you morning? Do morning, yeah. Yeah. How well are we talking? Oh, not that early. I really <laughs> love. I really love sleeping. I went through a period where I tried to do the wake up at five a.m. thing. It lasted for about three days. <laughs> um, but no, I think in the morning because I I think by by like about two p.m. that's when like my morale like really crashes and I'm just kind of like everything is hopeless and I just want to like if I'm working at home I just start making like snacks out of like like the most like bizarre and disgusting things like. So oh, we've all been there. Yeah. To do, yeah, yeah. I remember eating yeah. cold baked beans with a tin of tuna, just thrown. It sounds alright, actually. It, it sounds better than it was. It wasn't good. Oh, really? <laughs> but I'm very much a. Oh, here are some raisins that I bought seven years ago in the back of my cupboard. These would be delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, you mentioned you're doing a PhD. Is that on? Uh, you're doing a literature PhD or something? Yeah, completely it's um, creative and critical writing. So, like, um, part of it is. Part of that is a sort of manuscript element, and the other part is a sort of critical thesis. And what are you doing your thesis on? Oh, oh no, Charlene looks like she's about to cry. Wrong question. <laughs> it's stressful. I don't know. Oh, it's so God. It'll come. It'll come. We know you yeah. can write, so yeah. I'm sure you'll, it'll be a masterpiece. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh no, what a down. What a down. <laughs> Sorry to make you frown. <laughs> but the quantity is absolutely fantastic. It's out on. Uh, April 19th um, and if you haven't thought about going to buy it go and buy it and, and uh, Charlene's joining us at the Riff Raff on June the 14th um, so grab your tickets and come along and say hi wonderful thank you so much for joining us <laughs> thanks the Riff Raff podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards come say hey at the-riffraff.com 